Wondery Plus subscribers can listen to 10% Happier early and ad-free right now. Join Wondery Plus in the Wondery app or on Apple Podcasts. This is the 10% Happier Podcast. I'm Dan Harris. Hello, my fellow suffering beings. How we doing? Uh, you may have noticed, either through meditation or uh, through just being alive, that uh, your mind is out of control. You've got all sorts of things you want to do, habits you want to establish, goals you want to achieve, and yet you often don't manage to do them. You have all sorts of things you don't want to do, procrastinate, lose your temper, whatever, and often you end up doing those things anyway. We talk a lot on this show about how the Buddha had tons of strategies for taming the monkey mind, but uh, so did the ancient Greek philosophers about whom we don't talk that much. So today we've got a professor from Yale who's studied these ancient philosophers extensively and has come up with a very clear and practical way to apply these ancient secrets of happiness to our modern lives. Tamar Gendler is Dean of the Faculty of Arts and Sciences, Vincent J. Scully Professor of Philosophy and Professor of Psychology and Cognitive Science at Yale University. Her online course, Philosophy and the Science of Human Nature, has hundreds of thousands of views, and an updated version will be on the Coursera website this spring. In this conversation, we talk about the tension between our animal nature and our spiritual slash intellectual nature, how to define concepts such as virtue, morality, and the soul, whether living a moral life actually makes you happy, the similarities and differences between ancient Greek philosophy and Buddhism, and how Tamar applies all of this in her own life. Audible lets you enjoy all your audio entertainment in one app. You'll always find the best of what you love or something new to discover. They offer an incredible selection of audiobooks across every genre, from bestsellers and new releases to celebrity memoirs, mysteries and thrillers, motivation, wellness, business, and more. Audible is the destination for thrilling audio entertainment with highly anticipated new releases and next listen recommendations for every type of thriller listener. The selection over on Audible when it comes to true crime, mystery, and thriller is um, quite extensive. They've got John Grisham, tons of stuff by Stephen King, David Baldacci. My favorite that I've checked out recently in the crime fiction genre is called Age of Vice. It's by Deepthi Kapoor. It came out uh, not long ago. Not only is it thrilling and uh, very, very plotty, but it's also written incredibly well. It's truly literature. Deepthi Kapoor is a, a force of nature as a writer. Age of Vice, it takes you into the uh, underworld in New Delhi in India. I absolutely love that one. As an Audible member, you can choose one title a month to keep from the entire catalog, including the latest bestsellers and new releases. New members can try Audible free for 30 days. Visit audible.com slash 10% or text 10% to 500-500. That's audible.com slash 10% or text 10% to 500-500 to try Audible free for 30 days. Audible.com slash 10%. The Taste the Mediterranean sales event is going on now through March 19th at Whole Foods Market. It's a store-wide event packed with flavor. My family and I are regulars at Whole Foods Market. We've got one, I think, less than a mile and a half away from our house. This Taste the Mediterranean thing sounds pretty cool. Uh, they've got Mediterranean-inspired flavors. You can save on Parmigiano-Reggiano, charcuterie, and ground lamb. 
They've got delectable seafood choices. You can save on whole branzini and sustainable wild-caught sockeye salmon, which is a regular feature at our dinners in this house. My son loves that salmon from Whole Foods. And I'd be remiss if I didn't point out all of the uh, 365 by Whole Foods Market products. Stock up on Wallet Happy Mediterranean essentials like feta cheese crumbles, whole wheat pita pockets, and more. I am constantly uh, consuming these 365 products, including the, the raw cashews, which I snack on all the time. We love the 365 sea salt and pepper. Uh, we love their sushi rice. You get the picture. Go check it out. Taste the Mediterranean now at Whole Foods Market. I always love it when uh, the people behind a product that my family already uses tell us that they want to be sponsors of this show. Today, it's Tidy Cats. As you may know, we have uh, an unreasonable amount of cats, four of them. So we use a lot of kitty litter, and Tidy Cats is great. Uh, they have a product called Tidy Care Alert, which uses color-changing crystals to detect potential concerns and help you put your mind at ease. Let Tidy Care Alert help keep an eye on your cat's health. Whether you have one or four cats, they make it easy to keep track. Plus, it's low dust and lightweight with long-lasting ammonia control from the brand most often recommended and personally used by veterinarians. I'm not a vet, but I do love cats. Tidy Cats. Check them out. Professor Tamar Gendler, welcome to the show. Thank you so much. I'm really excited to talk to you. Let me just start with some basic biographical information. One of your areas of expertise is how the wisdom of ancient philosophers can help us do life better now. I'm just curious, how, how did you arrive at this area of interest? So I was really always interested in the way in which the same idea is presented in different contexts, depending upon the goal of the person doing the communicating. So I grew up in a family where my father was a rabbi. And you might think the project of religious interpretation is a project of taking a set of texts which were composed at a time in history, distant from the time that we are right now, and help make salience their relevance as guides to the deepest human questions. So in the same way that a scholar of religion or a practitioner of religion might relate to ancient wisdom texts as objects that can help you in the present, so too did I come to recognize that many of the texts that I was reading in the context of my academic work as a faculty member— works of people like Plato or Aristotle or the early modern philosophers like Descartes or Hume, that all of them could be treated in a similar way, which is to say, what are the insights that appear here that can guide us because they are truths that extend beyond the time and place at which they were composed? Was there something about your life, aside from the fact that your dad was a rabbi and was interested in universal truth, was there something about your life and your needs, desires, curiosities, problems, challenges, neuroses that sent you in this direction? So one wonderful thing about human beings is I suspect there are exactly zero people on earth for whom there are not needs, desires, neuroses, circumstances, frustrations 
that require them to think about how can they thrive in a world that doesn't perfectly conform to the world in which they wish they found themselves. So I had what by every measure is a wonderfully supported life. I grew up in a loving family. I found a loving partner. I had two wonderful children. But even against that backdrop, there are things that don't come out the way you hope. And I was not particularly religious, though I had been raised in a family that was spiritual. And so I was looking for ways of answering questions that really mattered to me. What is it to put yourself in a position to be able to truly care for and truly listen to another person? And I didn't have a theological framework in which to do that because for whatever reason, the framing of the world as divine eminence didn't speak to me. So I was struggling with what I think are the set of questions that we all struggle with. How do I live in a world so full of imperfection in ways that I can care both about those close to me and about those further from me in ways that I can take joy in what I'm doing at any given time? And for me, the set of wisdom texts that spoke most effectively to the kinds of questions and concerns that I had were a set of texts that were pretty cleanly logically structured in the way that philosophical texts are, as opposed to another modality of something that is, for example, associatively structured in the way that metaphor or mysticism is. I think what you're describing is pretty common these days. You have people who, you know, a quick way to put it, the sort of common parlance way to put it is I'm spiritual, but not religious. And everybody, whether they're spiritual, religious, or, you know, hardcore atheist, everybody needs purpose or meaning, whether they're aware of it or not. Everybody lives in a confusing, entropic world. And what we're now seeing is that we're looking for meaning in places that are somewhat surprising, uh, from work to soul cycle to meditation apps as mainstream religion loses its appeal for many people. Yeah, I mean, I would say all of us live in a world where there are earthquakes and fires. That is to say, all of us live in a world where there is unimaginable degree of human suffering. And all of us also live in a world where the people we love and care about most are sometimes going to disappoint us. So both in the very narrow sense of daily life, no one's daily life goes perfectly, and in terms of the planetary situation that we inhabit, there will always be an extraordinary amount of human suffering. And what to do in the face of those two facts, the very personal reality of frustration and the very, very objective reality that there is suffering which we can only do a small bit to alleviate. Those are going to be constant truths. And the question is, how in a world of which that is true, can we build lives that feel meaningful to us and that I would also say are meaningful to others? We care both about how it feels to us and about what it does in the world. We're going to talk about the overlap between Buddhism, which is something I know a little bit about, and these ancient folks. But you can find many of the same themes 
in shamanism, in Judaism, Islam, you name it, in these traditions that uh, were separated by both geography and chronology. Is the answer just blazingly obvious that if you think hard about the human condition, you're just going to come to the same conclusions no matter when or where you are? So I would say there's a common structural problem that we face, which is that we are simultaneously physical, embodied, contingent beings whose instincts and responses are fundamentally those of animals, that is, of organisms whose main ambition is to have children who have children. So one fact about human beings always and everywhere is our embodied nature. And that means all sorts of things. It means we're hungry. It means we're thirsty. It means we're sexually attracted to things. It means that we feel discomfort. It means that we can die. All of those are a set of truths. At the same time, human beings are capable of abstraction. They're capable of representation. They're capable of seeing one object as standing for another. They're capable of sophisticated emotion. And they're capable of planning and seeking to influence the world both directly at the moment and indirectly in long-term ways. And I would say the tension between being a finite physical being and a conceptual, intellectual, emotional planning being, the tension that produces requires strategies for resolution. And I would say all of the wisdom traditions to which you advert are different attempts to resolve the tension between our animal nature and our spiritual, intellectual, emotional nature. And you're convinced, I think you are, that even though these wisdom traditions are ancient, they really can apply to what's going on in our lives right now. I can imagine somebody listening to this saying, well, the Greeks, the Romans, the Buddha, the shamans in the jungles of uh, South America, they didn't have to deal with always-on technology. They didn't have to deal with climate change. They didn't have to deal with uh, political polarization of the variety that we're seeing now. There's so many modern problems that one could possibly argue are unprecedented. So I think there are, at any moment in history, a set of problems which are distinctive to that time. So we have a set of problems which are raised for us by modern technology. You just listed an excellent set thereof. But we don't in, for example, the part of the world where we have this technology, face the rate of child mortality that was typical among individuals who are living at Greek and Roman times. We have, as a society, developed alternate views of the way in which gender does or doesn't allow somebody to be an effective thinker. That is, in the ancient Greek and Roman world, it was hard for people to see women as full cognitive equals, whereas in the contemporary world, it is, in most communities, accepted that gender or sex is not what's determinative of cognitive capacity. So yes, there are going to be differences. Those differences are useful to look at both directions. It's useful to see that when you read back at the beginning of the Iliad, the story is about a fight over a woman who has been enslaved to be a mistress to one of the generals. And nobody, nobody in the story thinks that's a problem. 
So recognizing that we've made moral progress in terms of our capacity to understand subjectivity, that's a difference between the modern world and the ancient world. So too, the kinds of distractions that people face when you're reading an ancient Greek story, they're looking at the shape of the fire and it's mesmerizing. Is that similar to or different from the way in which looking at your iPhone is mesmerizing? Same in some ways, different in others. So I find that there is sufficient commonality for it to make sense to look across worlds. But yes, there are real differences. There are ways in which the modern world has things that the ancient world doesn't and ways in which the ancient world has things that the modern world doesn't. And noting that alongside noting the commonality is part of what makes it valuable to use ancient texts. All right. Having set the table in that way, and thank you for for your handholding. Let's talk about some of the key terms that you use or that the ancients were using. One of them uh, is eudaimonia. Yes. What does that mean? So the central phrase, the eudaimonia, has at its center the word daimon, which is transliterated in English D-A-I-M-O-N. And if you've read the film Pullman children's stories or if you know what the idea of a demon is, a daimon is something that is your spirit, your soul. And you can think of it metaphorically as the set of things which aren't just your body, your emotions, your imagination, your ambitions, your sense of morality. So that's your daimon. And what eudaimonia or eudaimonia adverts to is the condition of the soul, the spirit, the daimon being in good order. So think about if you're working as a waiter and you're carrying a set of plates back to the kitchen. If your tray is eudaimonic, that is, if it is in a position to thrive or flourish, all the plates are lined up in the right kind of way and nothing's at risk of tipping. So a way to think about an English translation of eudaimonia or eudaimonia is spiritual thriving well-being, flourishing. All right, I have a million questions about that, but I'm, I'm going to hold it because we're going to go much more deeply into uh, this balance that the ancients are calling for, which, by the way, you know, modern psychologists are calling for it as well. We'll put a pin in that for a second uh, in the name of just defining a few more terms. So we've done eudaimonia. The next one is, and please correct me if I'm mispronouncing this, phronesis. Good. Phronesis is an ancient Greek term that refers to a particular kind of wisdom. And we make this distinction still today. Phronesis is practical wisdom in contrast to what we might call mere book smarts. So somebody might be theoretically wise. They might know a lot of information. They might have a full encyclopedic sense of the structure of the community of which they're a part, but they might nonetheless lack practical wisdom. So the term phronesis refers to the kind of wisdom and understanding that has two really crucial characteristics. One is that it is sensitive to situation it is responsive to what is specific about the moment. 
It is aware of the ways in which whatever action is undertaken will affect the particular details of the circumstance in which you find yourself. So that's one feature. It's contextually aware. And the second is that it comes out on the spot quickly in real time in ways that are authentic. So think about ways in which those two things might not be the case, right? So you might have some abstract knowledge, but not be able to apply it to a particular situation. Or you might have that particular knowledge, but you can't call on it right at the moment. The moment that it matters to be able to control your anger is the moment at which you're about to get angry. It doesn't matter if you have that skill at other times. The moment at which it matters to express authentic sympathy, particularly with someone you don't like, is the moment when you are together. And so phronesis involves having cultivated in yourself the capacity to respond instinctively at a moment in a way that you wish you would respond that is sensitive to the particularities of that moment. So it's like a wisdom-based spontaneity. It's a wisdom-based cultivated spontaneity. In the same way that when you try to get theoretical knowledge, think about the drills that you do at school when you're learning multiplication tables. You want to learn the multiplication tables so completely that there's no think time between seeing six times seven and saying 42. Those want to become profoundly associated in your mind. And practical wisdom involves doing the same sort of rehearsal, generosity, kindness, loving kindness, forgiveness, so that those come out. Six times seven is 42. When you see those two numbers, I am compassionate towards you when I see your suffering. I like that uh, concept a lot. Uh, And we are going to come back to it. Continuing on the definitional tip, however, the next set of words I want to take a look at are, and maybe these should be addressed together and maybe they should be addressed separately, but virtue and morals. Good. So these are vexed terms. And one of the things we often discover in conversations is that sometimes people disagree about concepts and sometimes people disagree about which words apply to which concepts. And that that second question sometimes really feels like it matters to people. That said, in this context, I'm going to tell you how I think it would be helpful for us to use the word virtue and for us to use the word morality in the context of the conversation that we're going to be having for the next hour or so. So let me start with morality because that's a more general term in this context. Morality is roughly relating to the world with the recognition that you are not the only person in it. There are lots and lots of other ways to think about morality, but I think fundamentally what moral theories ask you to do is to take your perspective, understand what it is that you feel and experience and desire, and then recognize that the world is filled with many other such perspectives, each of which cares about its well-being as completely as you care about your well-being. So to behave morally is to recognize, for example, that your actions can harm or help another and that that matters. 
And whatever moral framework you subscribe to, whether it's a utilitarian consequentialist moral framework or a moral framework that comes from a divine command theory or a Kantian, what's sometimes called deontological moral framework, what all of those have in common is the assumption that other perspectives matter and that you recognize that in your actions and thinking. So that's how I want to characterize the notion of morality. And we can talk more specifically about different ways in which morality is sometimes characterized. Now let's move to the notion of virtue. The notion of virtue in the way that I'll be using it in our conversation is a notion of a really good bundled package of ways of doing things that tend to help morality. So it's as if there's a giant menu and people have thought really hard about which things go together really well. So if you're going to have this kind of first course, it really makes sense to have this kind of second course and it'll really go well if you drink this kind of liquid. A virtue is like that. Virtue is a set of practices that are likely to help you be moral in a wide range of cases. So, for example, according to the ancient Greek tradition, wisdom, courage, moderation, and justice, with a special notion of justice, are the four cardinal virtues. So let's think about bravery. So bravery is standing firm in the face of frustration, standing firm in the face of fear, standing firm in the face of disapprobation. And the ancient Greek picture says it is useful if you want to be moral, to be brave, because it allows you to carry through on your moral actions. But, says the ancient tradition, in order to be brave, you have to recognize that bravery is in between two things, each of which is dangerous. One of those things might seem obvious, which is being cowardly. So being brave is standing up even in the face of discomfort, even in the face of fear, even in the face of criticism. It's moving forward with something that you're committed to, even when it's not easy to do so. But bravery also needs to be distinguished by something on the other side, which is recklessness or stubbornness. And just as it's possible to, instead of being brave, be cowardly, so too is it possible instead of being brave to be reckless or stubborn, right? You want to persist in the face of others telling you not to, but not if they're right. So the virtue tradition involves developing very subtly calibrated habits of response to the world, like being brave, that are exquisitely sensitive to the ways in which bravery can easily slip into either cowardice or recklessness, and that as it avoids the other, it moves towards the one. Would it be safe to say that morality, I love your definition of morality, relating to the world as if you're not the only person in it, would it be safe to say that morality is, to put it in my terminology, morality is a kind of pulling your head out of your ass and seeing that you're not the only person on the planet and that other people matter too. And virtue are the tools with which one leads a moral life. Beautiful. Morality is pulling your head out of your ass 
And virtue are the tools that once your head's out of your ass, let you shape the world in the right sorts of ways. I consider it a a victory that I've just gotten a dean from Yale to use the phrase, (laughs) pull your head out of your ass, not once, but twice. So thank you for that. Um, uh, All right. Final word to define before we get into your framework, which is so interesting. The soul. The ancients talk a lot about the soul. What did they mean by that? So every culture tries to figure out a way to talk about the part of us that isn't just our body, the part of us that is aware of the world and able to communicate with the world. And so when I use the word soul in my conversations about the ancient Greek or ancient Roman or early modern tradition, all I mean by soul is mind, spirit, emotion, all the parts of you that aren't physical. So something that isn't in your soul is the orange juice that you drank for breakfast this morning. The orange juice that you drank for breakfast this morning is in your body, and there's lots of relations between your body and your soul. But roughly speaking, your body is the thing that's circumscribed by your skin, and your soul is the part of you that is abstract, intellectual, emotional, spiritual, conceptual, any of the terms that describe you as a thinking or feeling thing, as what philosophers sometimes call an agent or a patient in the world. An agent is somebody who does things in the world. A patient is someone who is affected by the world. So your soul is the part of you that affects and is affected by the world intellectually and emotionally. Great. Super helpful. Thank you again for, for your patience of, with, with me and walking me and, by extension, everybody else through the basic terms here. Much more of my conversation with Professor Tamar Gendler coming up after this. The show is sponsored by BetterHelp. What is the first thing you would do if you had an extra hour in your day? Many of us spend our lives wishing we had more time. Therapy can help you figure out what matters to you so you can do more of it. This is something I've spoken about at length for many years with with my therapist as somebody with a pronounced tendency toward overscheduling, working on figuring out what I care most about, what matters most to me, has been very useful when it comes to setting priorities. If you are thinking of starting therapy, give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online, designed to be convenient, flexible, and suited to your schedule. Learn to make time for what makes you happy with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com slash happier today to get 10% off your first month. Experiences are what people love the most about travel. This is perhaps a bit idiosyncratic, but one of the experiences that my son, Alexander, loves is mini golf. We recently went to a mini golf uh, themed restaurant in uh, in Denver where we were traveling. And uh, when we go to Montauk, which is our favorite beach town here on the East Coast, we play mini golf at Putt-Putt all the time. Alexander, his buddies, me. And in one way or another, these experiences are really what become the, the most memorable and important part about taking trips. 
Which brings me to Viator, which is a website and app where you can book travel experiences, everything from simple tours to extreme adventures. With over 300,000 bookable experiences in 190 countries, there's something for everyone. I have used Viator myself. I find it to be incredibly helpful. Download the Viator app now and use code Viator10 for 10% off your first booking in the app. One app, over 300,000 travel experiences you'll remember. Do more with Viator. Don't forget to celebrate the 10th anniversary of the 10% Happier book. We are offering subscriptions to the 10% Happier app at a 40% discount until the end of the month. Get this deal before it ends by going to 10%.com slash 40. That's 10%, one word, all spelled out, dot com slash 40 for 40% off your subscription. All right, so you have set out a framework that we're going to use as the framework for the rest of this discussion. Uh, But I'm just going to lay it out for people, and then you can say a few words about it, and then we can dive into each part of the framework. The top of the pyramid is Socrates, who has an observation about human nature. Number two is Plato, who um, explains that observation. And then, once we've understood something about human nature, there are four tactics to deal with these facts, and they are habituate, that's Aristotle. Two is situate, and that comes from the Odyssey. Three is attach, that comes from the Iliad. And four is detach, and that comes from Epictetus. So we're going to dive into each of the component parts of this framework, but am I spelling it out generally correctly? Beautifully. Thank you. So let's go into the observation, which is the first part of this framework. Socrates had an observation about who we are and how we operate. What was it? Good. So Socrates' observation is that we are fundamentally unknown to, and to some extent, unknowable by ourselves. We don't know ourselves. That's a simple way of describing the Socratic insight. There's a whole bunch of ancient stories about Socrates, and the details of them differ in the different tellings. But the fundamental theme of all of them is the recognition that Socrates' wisdom consisted in his humility, in his recognition not of what he knew, but of what he didn't know, and in particular of his awareness of the ways in which human beings are not transparent to themselves. The point that Socrates makes there is, of course, in some sense, the most obvious point ever. There could not be TV shows or novels if it weren't the case that people sometimes did things for reasons other than they thought they were doing them. No story of human experience assumes that we have direct access to who we are inside, to what motivates us, to what we really care about, to the reasons for which we're doing something. But interestingly, this is like an inverse of morality, it's really easy to recognize that something is true of everybody else without recognizing that it's true of you. So in a really ironic way, the way in which Socrates knows himself is to know that his self isn't any different from yourself or from anybody else's self. And just as they don't have 
direct knowledge or access to their motivations or to what it is that they really want or why they're doing what they're doing, so too is that true of Socrates. So there's an incredibly ironic structure where self-knowledge involves the acknowledgement that you don't know yourself and you come to that realization by realizing that you are, in a very interesting sense, not special. You are just like everyone around you whom you know do not know themselves. So how does this jibe with the Buddhist notion that the self is an illusion, that it's unknowable because it would be like trying to get to know Santa Claus? There is no Santa Claus, so there's no point getting to know him. So what I would say is the degree to which it is impossible to know oneself in the Buddhist tradition is more extreme because, as you point out, the Buddhist view is that there is no self. Self is an illusion. Self is a frame that we use for making sense of a world that is extraordinarily complex, that is useful for us in an unenlightened state, but gets in the way of a kind of true enlightenment. The Greek picture as I am reading it here, and let me say there are many different pictures of what the soul looks like, and so I'm just giving a characterization of one way we might think about it, is that there actually is a thing which is the individual, that there is a self in a sense that the Buddhists would not take there to be a self. There are various pictures, for example, of a self as persisting into an afterlife in the ancient Greek picture, but that that self is hard to see. So it's a different picture, but what's important about the commonality is that very often, even if you're going to Cleveland and I'm going to Billings, Montana, we can still travel west together on Route 90 for a while, even if you're going to get off in Cleveland and I'm going to go all the way to Billings. Yeah, I don't know which place I would less rather go, but setting that aside, what is the chronological relationship between Buddhism and ancient Greek philosophy? Was the Buddha alive many hundreds of years before Socrates or around the same time? So Socrates and the Buddha are roughly contemporaneous in the sense that they're both in this sort of 65400 BCE before the common era time. There is some speculation about what kind of interaction there is, both between the Buddha and the Buddhist tradition, and in particular, the Stoic tradition, which starts in the ancient Greek and Roman world in about the year 300 BCE. But I am not a historian, so what I want to claim is contemporaneity without making any hypothesis about the relation across the worlds. Fair enough. Okay, so that's the conclusion that Socrates... Then we move on to Plato, who has the explanation of the Socratic conclusion. Again, the Socratic conclusion is we don't know ourselves and it may be impossible or at the very least very hard to know ourselves. And that's just a fundamental fact about the human condition. And then Plato comes in with an explanation of this conclusion. What did Plato say? So what Plato says is, no kidding, we don't know ourselves because we're made up of a huge number of different parts. And each of them 
experiences the world in different ways and feels inexplicable to the others. So in particular, Plato uses a metaphor. He says that human beings have what can be helpfully thought of as three parts, what he calls reason, what he calls spirit, and what he calls appetite. So let me start with appetite. That's the big part of us that basically we share with non-human animals. It's basically consumption and procreation, anything that's required for our continued well-being. And that part of ourself wants to deal with the here and the now and the available and that which is giving simple pleasure. So there's a big part of us that is appetitive, that is responsive to really, really immediate features of the world. But in addition to that, says Plato, we have two other parts of ourselves, which he calls the spirited part and the rational part. The spirited part of ourselves is responsive to social approbation and disapprobation. Basically cares what other people think of us. And it does that in such a way that it too gains pleasure or pain from being accepted or rejected. So in the same way that you can be hungry in your appetitive part or feel pain in your toe, so too can you be hungry in your spirited part. You can be hungry for love or you can feel pain at the rejection of some approach that you have made towards someone you care about. So those are two parts of the soul, the appetitive part of the soul, appetitive from appetite, and the spirited part of the soul, the part of you that cares about social approbation and disapprobation, social approval and non-approval. Finally, says Plato, you have what he calls a rational part of the soul. That's the part of you that's capable of planning and having long-term thoughts about what you do and what you want to be. And the rational part may have very different pictures about which of your spirited or appetitive desires you ought to be indulging at a particular moment. In addition, your rational part is the part that does all the talking. Your rational part has the ability to speak in words. Your appetitive part has the ability to speak in things like your stomach grumbles or your hands are tapping because you're nervous and anxious. So the problem is that to the extent that you are thinking of yourself cognitively, to the extent that you are thinking of yourself from the perspective of rationality, you couldn't have direct access to spirit and appetite because no matter how many words you say to yourself, You're not going to stop feeling hungry. What speaks to appetite is food and procreation. What speaks to spirit is human connection. And reason can't directly provide that. So, says Plato, it shouldn't be a surprise at all that we're opaque to ourselves. It shouldn't be a surprise at all that we can't see fully inside to ourselves Because the big parts of ourselves, they're like two giant horses, appetite and spirit. And they're just pulling us around all the time. And the little part of ourself that can control that, which he calls the charioteer, isn't a horse. (laughs) It's so interesting that you see this notion of parts, that we all have parts, just 
echoing through the centuries, all the way up to modern psychology with things like uh, internal family systems, which literally uses the word parts. Internal family systems for the uninitiated is a, we've talked about it a lot on the show. I'll put some links in the show notes to prior episodes on this. It's basically a, a school of psychology that says you have these parts, a jealous part, an angry part, a, a petitive part that do their thing and are competing for salience in your mind at any given moment. And happiness, wholeness, balance, eudaimonia is the ability to work skillfully with these various parts. Exactly right. And just to move to another valuable perspective, the perspective of neuroscience, neuroscience is fundamentally a theory of functional roles that are played by either literal or metaphorical parts of the brain. Roughly speaking, the pieces of our brain evolved independently to do different kinds of things, right? We got a really big bunch of stuff in the back that's visual cortex that helps us take in information from the world that is presented to us visually. And then we have another part of ourselves that takes in information auditorily, and then we have emotional information that comes in and stuff that comes in through smell and stuff that comes in through memory. And notice that these can be in conflict in really simple ways. We have a set of structures in our brain that tell us whether we're moving or not. And we have a set of structures that proceed through our visual system that tell us whether we're moving or not. And if you're sitting on a train and the train next to you starts moving, those two systems are in conflict with one another. Your part that feels location through motion thinks you're still. It happens to be correct in this case. Your visual system says relative motion is being observed and it concludes that you, rather than the other object, are moving. And in fact, you begin to feel a little sensation about that. So the reason that almost every theory that tries to understand human beings makes reference to parts and how those parts work together is that as far as our best scientific understanding suggests, we actually quite literally are composed of parts. And those parts come into competition with one another all the time. They're basically racing through your brain to get control of your hands. That's why you can feel pulled in two different directions. Okay, so Socrates and Plato tee us up. They've given us a description of the human situation. We, per Socrates, are opaque to ourselves. And then per Plato, of course, we are opaque to ourselves because there's just so much shit going on in there at any given moment, it is hard to be happy or content or eudaimonic at any given moment because there's chaos and cacophony inside and out. And that then tees up these four tactics that you talk about in your course that can help us deal with the facts on the ground. The first of the four tactics is, uh, this is your term that you use, habituate. What do you mean by habituate? So think about the kind of being we've just discovered we are. We've got a little tiny horse driver and two giant horses who are running off, responding to things that have been true and motivating for human beings for eh, the last few million years of evolution. So one of the things to recognize is that's what we're made of. 
We're made of an amygdala and we're made of a visual cortex and we're made of all sorts of sensory apparatus that have evolved to be responsive to certain features in the world. And we are built of a whole bunch of drives and instincts that were designed to solve a very particular problem, namely that we have to have babies who have babies. Okay, so that's just a fact. Roughly, we're animals. So if you are trying to teach something to an animal, you might have discovered that narrative, storytelling, reading, persuasion aren't especially effective means for that. You don't take dogs to obedience school and read aloud to them from Aesop's fables. Oh, you greedy fox, you should not seek the grapes. That's not useful in training a dog. What you do when you train a dog is you engage in the presentation of certain kinds of motivational structures that make it pleasant to do a behavior that you desire to have happen and unpleasant to do a behavior that you don't desire to have happen. That is, we are capable, when we think about our relation to non-human animals, of understanding how it is that you train something that's not responsive to reason, that has habits and instincts that pull in directions that are problematic for whatever the circumstance in which you're putting it. And notice if you're training a dog to hunt or training a dog to tend sheep or training a dog to lead somebody who has a visual disability, those are three very, very different kinds of training. So just as you can train a dog, you can train yourself. But in addition, there's a certain fact about human beings, which is evolution gives us a set of tools that make us capable of what's often called learning. Learning is developing habits so that things in your environment become easy to deal with. So anybody who's ever learned to drive has learned that if you put your foot on the right pedal, you move forward. And if you put your foot on the left pedal, you decelerate. And you've learned that in such a deep way that you can use your full mental capacity in other ways while you are driving. That's why it's possible to talk and drive. Everything that you have learned to do while you are doing something else, all of those are habits. So if you're going to build, or if evolution's going to build a creature who is capable of learning, there must be an easy way of getting habits. And the answer is you get habits by doing the thing that the habit will ultimately encode. How do you learn to play the piano? You learn to play the piano by practicing playing the piano. And what Aristotle, on whose work I'm hanging this idea of habituation, suggests is that just as you can learn to practice a physical skill, right? You learn to catch a baseball by practicing. So too can you make it in yourself instinctive 
to act in accordance with what Aristotle calls the virtues. And you'll remember the cardinal virtues are wisdom, courage, moderation, and justice. But Aristotle's interested in all sorts of other virtues, like the virtue of generosity. So Aristotle says the way to become generous is just to practice being generous until generosity becomes second nature. So a way that I sometimes summarize the idea that Aristotle has, that anything you practice often enough becomes what you automatically do, is to say what I suspect you would call fake it till you make it, but to act as if you already were that which you wish to become. So you want to become brave? Act as if you were already brave. Just as crossing the street is a habit, just as typing is a habit, just as touching your phone with your thumb when it appears before you is a habit, so too, says Aristotle, things like bravery and generosity can become habitual. So this, I guess, brings us back to phronesis, the idea that you're training these skills in order to become a better person. That's right. I would say phronesis, which is the term that we're using to refer, remember, to practical wisdom. So there's theoretical wisdom, book smart, and practical wisdom, world smart. Phronesis, practical wisdom, is in some sense recognizing, habituate, situate, attach, detach, and to using each of those tactics in the circumstance where it's most valuable. We're going to do situate, attach, and detach presently. But but let me ask you one last question before we get into that. Aristotle, like Plato and Socrates before him, is talking about achieving these virtues. In the minds of these ancient Greek philosophers, were these virtues, were, was this morality synonymous with happiness? Or was this a type of thing you did just to be a good citizen and there was no self-interest? So Plato has a wonderful argument in a book called The Republic, where he argues that the virtuous person is 900 times happier than the non-virtuous person because their soul is well-ordered. So the picture on this ancient Greek view is that the virtuous person, the person who is wise and brave and moderate and just and has the other non-cardinal virtues as well, is living a life of eudaimonia because that which they value aligns with how it is that they're living. So it isn't a picture according to which you're guaranteed to be happy with regard to the appetitive part of your soul if you're virtuous. It's not that if you're virtuous, you will get the most food to eat or have the most exciting sexual partners. It's not even necessarily the case that you'll have the admiration of the largest group of people. But if you are virtuous, you will, in the most important sense, thrive. So virtue, which is going to cause you to be moral, because virtue involves recognizing, of course, that you are not alone in the world. Virtue and the morality that come with it, practiced through the skills of phronesis, practical wisdom, are going to leave you in a state of eudaimonia, in a state of spiritual well-being. But notice that spiritual well-being may not take the form that you thought it would 
pre-enlightenment, right? It's not necessarily going to give you better clothes and a particularly good glass of wine. Right. Yes. Eudaimonia doesn't necessarily mean you're, you know, taking selfies in front of a private jet with the hashtag blessed. It's a deeper kind of happiness than is often understood in in the culture. Much more of my conversation with uh, Tamar Gendler coming up after this. When it comes to hiring, don't go searching for the one. Just meet your match with Indeed. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. When I was looking to hire someone, it was so slow and overwhelming. I wish I had used Indeed. Leveraging over 140 million qualifications and preferences every day, Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences. So the more you use Indeed, the better it gets. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash happier. Just go to Indeed.com slash happier right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Indeed.com slash happier. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. I had a very pleasant experience shopping on Quince.com. Very easy to use website and they've got a terrific selection I bought myself a cashmere sweater and a sweatshirt. That sweatshirt in particular is an extremely heavy rotation. If you watch the YouTube version of this podcast, you will see it. Or if you see me on social media occasionally, I'm wearing my Quince sweatshirt. And I have to say, uh, the prices are hard to beat for a luxury brand. What's more, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing practices, along with premium fabrics and finishes. Indulge in affordable luxury. Go to quince.com slash happier for free shipping on your order and 365-day returns. That's quince.com slash happier to get free shipping and 365-day returns. Quince.com slash happier. Just to reset, Plato and Socrates have diagnosed the basic problem for humans that our minds are out of control uh, and we we don't have a, a, a clear view of them and are whipped all over the place. Then uh, what to do about that? The four tactics that you you lay out, we've just covered number one, which comes from Aristotle, which is to habituate, in other words, to create good habits that can help you build the virtues which will make you happier. The second of the four tactics is situate. And you draw this from the Odyssey, which many, if not all listeners will have read in junior high like I did and probably not remember. So can you describe the Odyssey in brief and then talk about what in it suggests that situate is a a good tactic for us? So the Odyssey is a really long book, which in 24 chapters tells the story, basically, of a guy getting home through a wildly indirect pathway. 
And most quest narratives end up taking that form. You start somewhere, you're going somewhere else, and you go to a whole bunch of places in between. In the case of the Odyssey, this character, Odysseus, who is heading home, finds himself in all sorts of different circumstances. And depending upon the circumstances in which he finds himself, he finds himself behaving in different sorts of ways. So he ends up on one island where there are beautiful songs being sung and he's tempted to take his ship off course. And he ends up on another island where everybody gluttonously eats and indulges themselves in those ways. So let me give an analogy that will help bring out the relation, I think, between habituate and situate. So habits are useful in some contexts, but might be completely non-adaptive in others. Here's a really simple one. I have a habit of reaching for the purple toothbrush because my toothbrush in our family has always been the purple one. It's a really, really good habit, and I unthinkingly reach for the purple toothbrush, and that's mine. But suppose I go to your house where there's five different people who have purple toothbrushes. All of a sudden, I'm in a situation where a really simple habit, reach for the purple toothbrush, isn't useful. Okay, what does this have to do with Aristotle and Odysseus? Habits are useful in the sense that they are contextually specific. Running really fast is a good habit to have when you are hearing the gun shoot at a cross-country race. But it's not a really good habit to have if you're right in front of a large street and you hear a sound and you run into traffic. Awareness that whether a habit is effective or not is going to depend upon the situation in which that habit is carried out. So situate involves putting yourself in circumstances that make it easy for your habits to work right. You might think of that in two different ways. One is that situating, surrounding yourself by others who share your values, can make it really easy to develop habits. If you want to study hard for an exam or get work done that is somewhat aversive to you, going to a library or a co-work space is a way of situating yourself so that the habit that you're trying to develop gets reinforced. The reason you take a yoga class, the reason you take a meditation class, the reason you take a language class is not because you couldn't do those things on your own, but because it's easier to do things when you are surrounded by others who share those values. So you situate yourself in a place that makes it easier for a certain practice to become habitual. The second thing that you do when you situate is that you make sure that your habit is able to deal with the situation that you find yourself in. And if it isn't, you can use some sort of external mechanism. So suppose I've worked really hard to cultivate in myself healthy eating habits, 
But it's nonetheless the case that a particular kind of sugary, buttery scent makes me attracted towards a particular kind of food. The advice situate says, don't keep those kinds of cookies on the desk in front of you. Move them away from you. Or plug your nose when you walk past the bakery. Or make it impossible to eat those cookies by putting them on a really high shelf. The other reason that I use the Odyssey as the example of Situate is because the story of the Odyssey tells exactly stories of Odysseus engaging in self-control in the face of temptation. So famously, Odysseus has to shear his boat between two islands. They're named Scylla and Charybdis, or Scylla and Charybdis. And on those islands are sirens, that is, beings with beautiful voices. And when you hear those voices, you're going to be tempted to steer your ship off course. Odysseus anticipates that he's going to be going through this narrow strait, that he's going to be tempted in this way. And so he does two things. The first thing he does is that he fills the ears of his oarsmen with wax so that they won't hear the sound and they'll be able to continue. That's like plugging your nose as you walk past a factory that has food that you see really appealing. Or it's like not buying food that will be tempting and putting it in your house. And meanwhile, Odysseus has himself tied to the mast so that he can't jump off the ship and listen to the sounds of the sirens. That's like doing something, Dan Ariely has an example of putting your credit card in a glass of ice water and freezing it so that you can't take it out until the water melts. You prevent yourself from acting on something. So the notion of situate, just to recap, is first the recognition that habits are context-specific, and that you can use the situation to reinforce a habit, and that it's also sometimes the case that a situation means that a habit isn't useful. And second, that we have strategies that we can use when habits themselves aren't enough. We can do things like avoid temptation, and we can do things like preventing ourselves from acting on temptation. So that's the notion of situate And that's why I take it from the Odyssey. We're working our way through four tactics to deal with the human condition, which is often a a dumpster fire. And we've worked through habituate, which is to create good habits. And then we went through situate, which is to uh, reinforce those habits with uh, the places and strategies that are wisely strategic. And we're moving into the third uh, tactic, which is attach. And you marshal your evidence in support of this strategy from the Iliad, which, if memory serves, is the uh, sequel to the Odyssey. The Iliad is the prequel to the Odyssey. But as we know from Star Wars, it doesn't matter the order in which you issue the tales. Hopefully your host should know these things, but uh, clearly your host is a dummy. You know, I actually think Temporal order and narrative are highly flexible things. (laughs) So the Iliad, the prequel to the Odyssey, is the story of the war from which Odysseus is heading back, roughly. So the Iliad is the story of what's called the Trojan War. 
And it's a story of basically nine days of battle and of how a group of human beings who are incredibly closely connected to one another and intricately affected by what they think of themselves and what other people think of them, how those groups of people, a group of Greeks and a group of Trojans, manage to bring an end to this long, long battle, which has lasted for almost a decade. And the picture here is that there's a sort of square in which we can operate. We can habituate, we can move over and situate, And one of the things we can recognize is that when we situate, one of the best ways to take advantage of circumstance is by exploiting the fact that we are profoundly social beings. So ultimately, we have this spirited part of ourselves, as Plato would say. Ultimately, we care what other people think. We spend the entirety of junior high school, the entirety of development into adulthood, working out where it is that we want to fit in the social world. And the capacity to care about others, both with the passion that love provides and with the passion that hatred provides, both with the passion that jealousy can give and with the incredible joy that comes from generosity, that's what I mean by the tactic of attach. So notice, all of these involve recognizing that you have a little driver who isn't a horse who has to figure out how to talk to the horses. One way to talk to the horses is to cultivate habits in the horses. Another way to talk to the horses is to situate the horses, right? Put them in places where there's plenty to eat so they don't fight or where they have a bridle on them so they all move in the same directions. That's situate. Another thing you can do with the horses is you can attach them. You can surround them by other horses who are acting in the way that they're acting. So that comes to be and feel natural to the horse. There's a beautiful metaphor in the Buddhist tradition of yoking an elephant who is to be tamed to an elephant who's already tamed. And thereby, the elephant comes to see that this mode of being in the world is available to it. So the category of things that I'm calling attach, which I put in the context of the Iliad because it's a story of love and war and jealousy and hatred and fighting and friendship and how painful it is to lose someone you love and how frustrating it is to be defeated by someone that you saw as an enemy. All of what that story is about is the incredible power that we have to use social situations to cause us to behave either more or less in the ways that we reflectively want to behave. Yeah, there's so much overlap here with Buddhism, which talks about the importance of sangha or community, which I often describe as like the HOV lane or carpool lane effect of meditating or doing life with other people who take this stuff seriously. And then you see it in modern psychology and habit formation is bolstered by having social support. In other words, being around people who are trying to do the same things you're trying to do. And that brings us to the fourth of the four tactics, which is detach instead of attach. And this comes in your schema from Epictetus. 
So Epictetus actually comes from the third wave of the Greco-Roman Stoic tradition. Unfortunately, we've lost the works from the earlier period. But Epictetus is a thinker around the year 70, 80 AD or CE, depending on how you refer to that time. He is born a slave and he writes a little handbook. Actually, one of Epictetus' students writes down in the form of notes from a lecture that Epictetus gives, a tiny little book that is literally meant to be the first self-help book. And the book begins with the unforgettable sentence, some things are up to us and some things are not up to us. And of course, that opening sentence is reflected in contemporary discussion in the form of the serenity prayer, right? God grant me the serenity to accept the things I cannot change, the courage to change the things I can, and the wisdom to know the difference. So Epictetus says, thriving, flourishing, living well requires you to approach the world knowing the difference between two kinds of things. Things that are up to you, that is, things that are in your control, and things that are not up to you, that is, things that are not within your control. And then, it's like an economics lesson, devote your efforts to the things you can change. Don't waste your money on the slot machine that's never going to give you a prize. So Epictetus's picture is this. In order to apportion your effort correctly— in order to have your desires align with the world, you need to put your energy towards changing the things you can and not towards trying to change the things that you can't. So that's step one. It's a waste of energy to try to, I wish the sun wouldn't rise at seven o'clock tomorrow morning. Well, you know what? The sun's going to rise at seven o'clock tomorrow morning. I wish my coffee were ready for me to drink when I woke up. Hey, that's something over which you have control. You can set the machine the night before instead of falling into bed. But the second thing that Epictetus says is that people often get things in the wrong category. In particular, they fail to recognize the degree to which their responses to the world are up to them. So Epictetus points out that no one can insult you unless you let them. Somebody says something to you. They don't like your shirt or they think you're a really bad podcaster. It's up to you whether that is received by you as an insult or, for example, whether it's received by you as an expression of their ignorance or an opportunity for growth. So Epictetus points out that, in fact, Almost all our reactions to the world are things that are up to us. Our reactions to social approbation and disapprobation and our reactions to the things which are sources of frustration. We feel very attached to an object. Then, as objects do, when it breaks, we will be sad. Rather, says Epictetus, if you detach yourself and your happiness from the things which are not up to you, you will be in a position to thrive. And you'll notice it's a very Buddhist theme. 
The second thing you'll notice is that if you are trying to cultivate detachment, suppose an object feels very, very important to you and you're trying to make it matter a little bit less. You can't just say to yourself, oh, that doesn't matter to me anymore. I don't care about X. You can't just do that at will. But notes Epictetus, there is a way you can do it, which is that you can try to cultivate habits that make it easier for you to detach and reattach to the things which matter, for you to distinguish between what is and isn't in your control and the ways in which you relate to them. So notice that we have a square. Habit is a way of controlling our instincts, but habit is both dependent on and affected by our situation. Our situation is largely shaped by the social interactions that we find ourselves having through attachment. But how we interpret and understand those social interactions, the way in which they motivate us, is actually much more up to us than we would think, not directly, but indirectly through our ability to cultivate and create habits, and so on through the quartet. Okay, so we've just walked through all of this. We walked through the diagnosis of the human condition and four tactics to deal with it. Where does this leave us at the end here? So what I would say is I've hung on a particular set of enduring texts. What I think is a really easily universalizable, tangible way of thinking about a particular problem that we all have, which is basically we do stuff we wish we wouldn't do, and we do it because of the fact that we are both human and animal. And I happen to have attributed the first of those to Socrates and the second of those to his student Plato. But basically, it's a universal human truth that we don't always end up being able to do what we wish we would have done at the moment. And that one of the reasons for that is because we're built up out of a whole bundle of stuff. And then I said, look, if we're built up out of a whole bundle of stuff, what's a relatively easy way to think about how to get that bundle well-ordered, how to get the plates balanced on the tray so that we can carry it around? And what I said is, here's four. We can form habits. We can put ourselves in useful contexts. We can surround ourselves by people and take advantage of the ways that motivates us. And we can recognize the way in which our reactions to things are a lot more up to us than we thought they were, especially if we use habits to cultivate instincts that we care about. And I happened to attach each of those, habit to Aristotle, situate to the Odyssey, attach to the Iliad, and detach to Epictetus. But you could do this exact same storytelling using a set of novels. You could use this exact same storytelling in the context of a 12-step program. I've given you a set of tools that actually underlie first rational behavioral therapy and then cognitive behavioral therapy. So all of these are intended to be tractable, understandable, easy to hold on to in the moment. 
And notice, of course, that that's the lesson that we would expect to be the case. It's not useful if something rips to have the scotch tape that you use back at home. It's useful to have the scotch tape ready to hand. The metaphor that Epictetus uses when he writes his handbook of something that's ready to hand is actually the metaphor of having a sword ready to draw at the moment. So part of the reason for putting these in snazzy little heuristic form, habituate, situate, attach, detach, is to have them be ready to hand. We do well when something is easily available. And something is easily available when it's put into a simple form. And that's part of why you need to have your podcast every week, right? It's not enough just to say once, here are some tactics and strategies for flourishing and thriving. It's not enough to like meditate on Tuesday and then you're done meditating. Exactly because we are the kinds of beings who are helped by heuristics, habituate, situate, attach, detach, we are beings who need such heuristics. So that brings me to my gentle, gingerly offered Buddhist critique, not of your heuristic, which I think is fantastic, but more of Greco-Roman philosophy generally to the extent that I understand it, which is not a great extent. So you may actually be able to undermine the entire foundation of this critique I'm going to advance here, which is given how hard it is to remember not to be an asshole, given how hard it is to remember not to give in to your animal desires on the regular, I think, in my experience at least, that we need more than just heuristics and more than just the intention to create habits toward generosity and other virtues, but meditation, which allows you to kind of pound this into your neurons to see clearly how chaotic and cacophonous the mind is, not in a theoretical way, but in a very embarrassing way all the time. So you're giving the charioteer, who, as you keep reminding us, is not a horse, this muscularly challenged charioteer, so a little bit more muscle um, so that he can or she can or they can see what the horses are up to at any given moment and redirect them. Anyway, does that make any sense what I'm saying? Makes a lot of sense. And actually, I want to extend your metaphor, right? So I've told the story at the level of a self, a particular human being. And I've said, here from the perspective of self is a set of heuristics. Interestingly, when Plato has this big discussion of the individual, he's actually using it to figure out how society should be structured. And when Aristotle finishes the Nicomachean Ethics, which is his big discussion of habit, he actually goes on to write a book called The Politics, which is about the structure of society. So let me say this in response to your Buddhist concern. The self is a really useful level to think about things. And I've given you a framework for thinking about things from the perspective of the self. Plato and Aristotle and political philosophy in general say the self is also, though useful, too small a framework in which to be thinking about this. We actually need to think about what's the structure of society? What's the structure of religion? How is it that we build things that reinforce in people all of these tendencies, right? So you might think the self is one size and society is another. What you are rightly pointing out is that the Buddhist tradition is intensely aware 
of the ways in which the self is not just too small to be the only focus of our attention, but also too big to be the only focus of our attention. And by the way, it doesn't exist anyway. And so in addition to the reinforcement that comes from building the right social structures and religious frameworks and the support that comes from using these four heuristics at the level of the self, in addition, the Buddhist rightly points out, this needs to be reinforced at the level of the sub-self, at the level of the neuron, at the level of not even recognizing this particular contingent assemblage of subjective experiences as being anything more than a contingent assemblage of subjective experiences. So I would say, think of these as three among the many scales of approaches you could take, sub-self, self, super-self, and all of them, I think, in that sense, are making the same set of observations. Did the Greco-Romans have, did they make any attempts to kind of build an inner microscope that allowed them to see the sub-self in a way that would um, give either the self or the body politic a leg up when it comes to the horses? I don't know of a meditation tradition in the Greco-Roman context, but I am, to reiterate, not a scholar of the period. I do know that there is lots and lots of work, for example, in Plato's Republic about the rhythmic training of the soul and about the essential ways in which you train individuals who are going to be in leadership positions to appreciate harmony in music, mm. to march together. That is, you use things that are at the level below consciousness things that involve the entraining of certain kinds of sensitivities. And all of those happen at a sub-rational level. I personally don't know of ways in which there is an analog to the meditation tradition, but there is a lot of spiritual letting go. So there is a notion of revelry. There are certain kinds of ingestions of drugs, inhalation of vapors, mm. which involve a detachment from reality as a way of letting go. But I would say, to my knowledge, the closest analog to the practice of meditation is the practice of the cultivation of sensitivity to harmony. And what does that practice look like? So Plato has this great description in the Republic of how it is that we're going to train what he calls the guardians, which basically the people who are going to be in charge of making wise decisions on behalf of the community. And he has a long description of how their early childhood involves particular kinds of gymnastic routines and trainings in hearing the harmony of particular kinds of sounds. And so the idea, roughly, I mean, it's the poster in your doctor's office. Children learn what they live. And the picture is supposed to be individuals who are going to go on to leadership positions should be individuals who find it instinctively joyful to move their bodies in synchrony with others individuals who find it instinctively joyful to hear music that is orderly in a certain way. And the idea, I take it, is that those things will come to feel comfortable and deeply real to the guardians in such a way that they will try to cultivate a society in which 
not just literally, but metaphorically speaking, bodies move together in harmonious ways and the aesthetic and social experiences that people have are ordered rather than disordered. Final question for me, you know, you've you've been studying and uh, teaching these concepts for so long. How are you doing with your own levels of eudaimonia and phronesis? I am privileged to be in a marvelous moment in my life. But I'm in that marvelous moment in my life largely because of the practices that I have undertaken. And I would say I was someone in particular who needed the lessons of Epictetus, the recognition that some things are up to me and some things are not up to me, the recognition that whether a behavior on the part of someone I love is a betrayal or whether it's an expression of their independence and autonomy is mine to judge and determine. And I would say the framework that Epictetus gave me buffered by the recognition that habit and context and association with others could make a big difference has been absolutely essential in getting me through the parts of life that anybody faces at my age, a parent dying, my children leaving the home, and a sudden need to reconfigure what it is that my ambitions and relationships look like for what I hope will be the next three decades of my life. I could ask you so many more questions about all of that, but uh, I'm sensitive to your time uh, and grateful for your time and for helping all of us get uh, a step or two closer to uh, phronesis. Professor Tamar Gendler, thank you very much. Thank you so much, Dan Harris. Thanks again to Professor Tamar Gendler. Great to talk to her. I love that episode. Uh, In this conversation, you might have heard me mention a model of therapy called Internal Family Systems to learn more about IFS. Go to our show notes and you can find some links to past episodes that will deliver. 10% Happier is produced by Lauren Smith, Gabrielle Zuckerman, Justine Davey, and Tara Anderson. DJ Kashmir is our senior producer. Marissa Schneiderman is our senior editor. Kevin O'Connell is our director of audio and post-production. And Kimmy Regler is our executive producer. Alicia Mackey leads our marketing. And Tony Magyar is our director of podcasts. Finally, Nick Thorburn of Islands wrote our theme. If you like 10% Happier, and I hope you do, uh, you can listen early and ad-free right now by joining Wondery Plus in the Wondery app or on Apple Podcasts. Prime members can listen ad-free on Amazon Music. Before you go, tell us about yourself by filling out a short survey at wondery.com survey. The early 2000s was a breeding ground for bad reality competition series. From shows like Kid Nation, CBS's weird Lord of the Flies-style social experiment that took 40 kids to live by themselves in a ghost town, to The Swan, a horrifying concept where women spent months undergoing a physical transformation and then were made to compete in a beauty pageant. Hi, I'm Misha Brown, and I'm the host of Wondery's podcast, The Big Flop. Each episode, comedians join me to chronicle one of the biggest pop culture fails of all time and try to answer the age-old question, who thought this was a good idea? Recently on The Big Flop, we looked at the reality TV show, The Swan. 
The problem, this dream opportunity quickly became a viewing nightmare. They were isolated for weeks, berated, operated on, and then were ranked by a panel of judges. Follow The Big Flop on the Wondery app or wherever you get your podcasts. Hey, grown-ups! The Cat in the Hat cast is a new podcast from Wondery, perfect for the whole family. Join the Cat in the Hat and your favorite Dr. Seuss characters as they get whisked away on a new adventure every week. Fish dreams of creating his very own polite and quiet podcast. That is, until he gets a surprise visit to his fishbowl podcast studio from the cat in the hat himself. And it becomes very clear that the cat has other plans for the podcast. And those plans are the opposite of quiet. Sing along to new favorite songs, try your luck at Titanic tongue twisters, have some fun with wondrous wordplay, and most importantly, bring your family along for all of the adventures in the Cat in the Hat cast. Follow the Cat in the Hat cast on the Wondery app or wherever you get your podcasts. You can listen to the Cat in the Hat cast early and ad-free on Wondery Plus. Join Wondery Plus in the Wondery app or on Wondery Kids Plus on Apple Podcasts today.